Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today my guest is Dr. Yair Wallach. Yair is senior lecturer at SOAS, at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, and is the author, an acclaimed author, I would say, of A Sitting Fragment, Urban Text in Modern Jerusalem. Yair, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. As you probably already know, the first question and the only common question to all of my guests is, Yair, what is your Jerusalem? In other words, what is your connection with the city? So I was born in Jerusalem and I grew up in the city or not far from the city. Um, I went to university there, my first degree. So I spent most of my life uh, in Jerusalem or not far from it. Uh, up until I finished uh, my first degree and I came to the UK for my MA and postgraduate studies and since then I've been here my family and friends many of them are still in Jerusalem so that's the connection uh, but I also ended up writing about Jerusalem and teaching about Jerusalem which was unexpected for me so uh, it's an ongoing uh, relationship. Now you just published this very uh... I would say, powerful book about Jerusalem, uh, acclaimed, uh, you know, it has become sort of a, a buzz, not just amongst the people working on Jerusalem, but uh, also through social media and media. But I want to move to more the, the personal connection with the city. There is a very powerful image and story at the very beginning of the book. It's you on the roof of the railway station in Jerusalem. How did you start thinking about uh, working on Jerusalem? You're talking about you walking around the city. So I, I was wondering, what did young Yair Wallach saw in Jerusalem? 
So I have to say, I mean, this is um, goes back to my PhD, and uh, I was initially reluctant to uh, uh, work on Jerusalem. I came from the um, I came from the direction of textuality, text, and I wanted to write something about the modern history of text, and I wanted to write about Arabic and Hebrew, but I didn't know what form exactly it would take. Uh, and, and it was going to be about text in the city. So the kind of text that we see around us every day, but we half read, half notice, half not notice at all. And that was the idea in general. And I thought, Cairo, Haifa, uh, and so forth. And uh, and then my PhD supervisor at the time said, why don't you write about Jerusalem? And I was taken aback. And of course, because, you know, nobody wants to write about the place they came from. It's like, we're too familiar with this. It's, it's boring and so forth. But then I had to, I considered it. And I thought, actually, this is a very good suggestion because from the very beginning this was going to be a comparative project i wanted to look at transformation of arabic and hebrew with modernity and the benefit of jerusalem it's not a very big city uh, but it's allows to do this comparative work in such a microcosm um, that's one thing and the second it had longer tradition so in a way, if I was going to Haifa, Haifa is a, you know, it's a, a 18th century village that goes, becomes into a town, becomes into a bigger town, and so forth. But you cannot compare it to Jerusalem where you have, in terms of text, in terms of inscriptions, you have millennia of uh, inscribing, people inscribing onto the landscape of the city. And that is very important. And uh, Jerusalem is very, very well documented. And that's the other thing. I mean, it's, you know, it's one of the places that when you have uh, photography, and when photography is invented, or in the same year, you have photographers arriving in Jerusalem starting to take pictures. So just in terms of photographic archive, it's, it's a remarkable richness there that I wouldn't have in any other place. So... In that sense, I thought actually this is a potentially very interesting location. What I didn't realize is that by doing the research, I will change the way I look at the city. And I think that was the big gift of uh, studying it and then eventually writing the book, is that I thought I knew Jerusalem. I had these kind of conceptions of what the city is. I came to reread it in a completely different light, and that was for me a good, uh, a good gift for, uh, uh, to to receive. And in, in some ways, I, and I think that, that my current project is not specifically on Jerusalem, and I'll probably move on from Jerusalem to other areas. But for me, that was a good way to uh, to say hello and farewell to the city that I. I, I thought I knew so well, and I rediscovered through this research. Can I ask you what kind of differences uh, you noticed, uh, you know, moving from Yair Wallach, the residents, 
the person, the individual that grew in the city and your scholarly work? What, what kind of Jerusalem changed or what your perception of the, of the city changed? Um, I mean, the big thing was um, re-evaluating the modern history of the city, the late Ottoman and the British mandatory period. Um, and, and for that, also reinterpreting Jerusalem of today. I think the, what is meant in, in, in concrete terms is that I would go around places which I knew very well, but because I started seeing them through the archival sources, through the diaries and memoirs I was reading, Suddenly, I, I started hear, hearing voices, and the ghosts started speaking to me, and they told stories that I was not familiar with and were surprising. So the same kind of uh, urban fabric, which I was extremely well familiar with, suddenly uh, shifted in my head, uh, was reconfigured into something, something else. Uh, I mean, the, the best example is Jaffa Gate. And Jaffa Gate is, so for me, it was the portal of the old city. And, you know, it has this kind of large square in front of it, and it has the promenade uh, along the walls, which I knew very well. Uh, a relative of mine was in charge of the um, putting the illumination of the city walls that makes it so striking in the night. Um, so this is all such a familiar part of my childhood to see the city walls and to see Jaffa Gate and to buy the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the bagels, the uh, Jerusalem uh, kak in Jaffa Gate with the Zatar. All this is very familiar. Suddenly I was reading that this is Actually, this was the center of town. And that there was these rows and rows of shops and cafes and banks and photographer studios that were there. And I read uh, various people I was reading, Gad Frumkin, Khalil Sakakini, and they all hang out in those places which are no longer there. It's all destroyed there. Yeah? And there's not even a, a, a relic. There's nothing there to indicate that there was something there that was not just another neighborhood. This was the heart of the city. And for them, this was the, the promise of tomorrow. And, you know, hearing these people in my head while kind of walking this promenade, which uh, obliterates them and obliterates their memory, that was a very unsettling experience and uh, and one that really kind of in a way you know you look you walk on familiar ground and the carpet is is swept underneath your feet you kind of you feel you know this place but you don't really know this place and suddenly it's it's completely different from what you thought and the same thing is going you know this the, the road that is now takes you underneath the promenade and takes you out of, uh, around Damascus Gate. And in a way, going through that, under that part and thinking about uh, this part of the city was a very 
you know, it's just a very strange experience. And that kind of made me think that the way we think about Jerusalem, and I think there's very clear lines in everybody's, you know, Jerusalemites have a very clear invisible lines of Jewish areas, Arab areas, and the, the, you know, the tiny international enclaves. And these lines were basically, again, swept aside to something else, to some other kind of, of Jerusalem uh, that was not some kind of ancient city, but rather a very modern one. And you, when you read these memoirs, you know, they are incredibly modern. I mean, uh, you know, in, in your first episode, when your interview with uh, Selim Tamari talked about Hassan Turjeman, and when you read Hassan, I mean, his voice is so fresh. He sounds like a 20-year-old today. You don't feel like this is some kind of the hallowed past or anything. You, you feel that this is someone who is really excited by the promise of technology and the tomorrow, etc. I mean, there's something so fresh. And again, I mean, I think about Hassan. I think about him going to buy his... Uh, European hat in near Jaffa Gate. He's sitting in the cafes there, etc. And I felt a connection to these people, and they were all gone. Their descendants, uh, in the case of Tujaman, displaced, but the places are gone. And that again, I mean, I think it uh, it was very, very strange feeling and a strange feeling. But that uh, made me think that you know that. Um, we can think of other ways. We can think of other Jerusalemite uh, uh, futures rather than the ones that we are very familiar with, the, the present. So uh, in that sense, it was also a liberating moment uh, um, that, that Jerusalem does not have to be a captive of its perception of its past. It can actually use the past to to break free of this kind of heaviness which we associate with it. I would agree with the fact that there's so many people just looking at Jerusalem through the lenses of its past, but the past that is often biblical or oriented to satisfy claims or what they believe. So I don't want to go into that, but I want to ask you something because you are one of the few people that worked on one of these Jerusalemite figures roaming around the city between the late Ottoman period and the early British era, which is Gat Frumkin. We know a lot about Isan Turjman that you mentioned, Wasik Juaria, Sakakini, and other individuals. What I always found fascinating about Gat Frumkin is he wrote extensively, never translated into English, and in fact, you are one of the few people that took chunks of his diary and memoirs and eventually you know, made it available to a larger audience. Can you tell us who was Gat Frumkin and why such an important individual in that transitional uh, period? So Gat Frumkin, um, born in the late 19th century to um, a Hasidic family. His father was a Lubavitch Hasid, uh, a man with means, an educated man, um, that settled um, um, very close to the Sarai, the new Sarai that was uh, later the, uh, uh, 
Muslim orphanage. Um, and they lived very, very close. So he, he lived very close to the center of power in what is now today, uh, you know, the Muslim quarter, but it's, uh, Frum King calls it Al-Wad neighborhood because this is the Al-Wad, Mahalit Al-Wad. And the father came from Tsarist Russia, became a publisher, uh, had a, uh, um, you know, a print shop in his house and that was the main source of income. So he had um, a newspaper, Chabat Selet, uh, but he's also a, a public activist in the Jewish Ashkenazi community, involved with the municipality, involved with various forms of charity, has a lot of businesses, uh, trading activities, small initiatives, uh, a, very, a prolific and active man, uh, Israel Dov, the father of Fumke. So his father was an Ashkenazi migrant, again, very well connected to, Mus to the Muslim elites, to various Christian families, to uh, various, you know, Jewish diasporic uh, organizations and so forth. And God grew up in that context, um, you know, their uh, landlords and neighbors were the Hosseini families, but he grew up primarily in a Jewish environment, uh, privately educated, uh, but uh, then started writing for his father's newspaper. And he was a very ambitious man from the very beginning. I mean, he was um, someone with uh, grand hopes. And around the uh, 1908 revolution, that crystallizes too. He understands that there's new um, possibilities. So he is the first one to announce on the revolution in his father's newspaper, uh, according to the memoir. He goes to the Ismail Behseni, was the kind of censor, and he was in charge of the education in the district, and asked for permission to break the news about the revolution. And and Ismail Hassani says to him, "Are you sure you want to do this? You know, it might go the other way. Don't be rushed, and so forth." And we know that Hassanis were more skeptical about the revolution than the Khaldis. We know these stories. Um, but he is very much a believer of, of the revolution. And, uh, and he sees the opportunities there. And that's also the break with his father. He thinks that Jews should seize on the moment and, and, uh, and, and use this to promote themselves, whether it's through business or through uh, working in the Ottoman parliament and so forth. So he goes to Istanbul to study law. His big hope is to become an MP in the, in the uh, Ottoman parliament. Comes back to Palestine just before the war has, and becomes a lawyer uh, involved with the Ottomans, has very good connections with Jamal Pasha and others. When the war ends, he is there as someone who is on the one hand part of the city, part of the local elite, if you want, excellent connections with the Arab elite and so forth. But on the other hand, his father-in-law in -law is a big Zionist, Aaron Eisenberg from Rehovot. 
and he is familiar with the Zionists. So the Zionists come to him, and Chaim Weizmann says, we want you in the court. We want you to be a judge. And they pushed him to take a position of a judge. And within two years, he becomes, he's on the bench of the Supreme Court in Jerusalem. For a young man, this is a meteoric rise. And as, a, as in one of the justices of the Supreme Court, I think he's effectively the most senior Jew in the Palestine government. We have other, other Jews in senior positions in the education department, in the trade department, and so forth, uh, but never quite as high, I think. Although this is a judiciary, this is not the government of Palestine. Nonetheless, it's a, it's a, it's a very, very esteemed position. It's one of the is also influential. So for 28 years, from 1920 till 1948, he's in that position. And within that, he has a lot of power within the issue. He has a lot of power and connection with the Arab elite. And he is very pivotal to various initiatives, which end quite abruptly in 1948, when the state of Israel is established. And for out of caution, he steps down from the court because he does not know what's going to come next, but he expects to be uh, part of the, the, the Supreme Court when it's reestablished. But he's effectively um, um, sacked or kicked out of the court. So you have someone who is the most senior Jew in, uh, in the Palestine government and in the judiciary that is then not even given a, a place in the Supreme Court, let alone to be the, uh, the head of the Supreme Court. And that is because uh, the Ministry of Justice is a more, is uh, a German Jew that came much later. Uh, and the German Jews do not like Fomkin for him, for them is kind of a native. He's an Oriental Jew, even if he's Ashkenazi. And, uh, and they uh, invent a story that he, he took bribes and use it as an excuse to, uh, to kick him out. He, he, when he learns about this, he's outraged and there's some kind of committee that clears his name. And, uh, and, and that's the story. He dies not uh, much later. So the he writes the memoir in a way to clear his name. Not explicitly, yeah. I mean, the story of the bribe is, does not appear there, but in a way to defend his reputation and to show to the Hebrew reader his role in the construction of the Yishuv and the setting up the ground and his illustrious career and so forth. So in a way, I mean, have the, the, the memoir is really written for Hebrew readers to, uh, and for Zionist readers. So it's written to, to defend his record in that sense. But at the same time, if you read it carefully and you need to read it against the grain, uh, you can see a lot of his disagreements with the Zionist establishment. And you can see that he came from a different perspective. And to a large extent, that different perspective also resulted in his, the fact that he was excluded uh, from the Supreme Court. Now, what I found 
uh, interesting. This is a well-known source. I was not by no means the, the, the first one to use it. But what we have, people who used it, used it usually in a very narrow way uh, on the political history in which uh, Fonkin was involved. His connection with uh, Hajami Husseini, um, perhaps the initiative of the five that he was involved for negotiations, even then it's not much has been written. And a little bit more than that, it was taken as a social history source to a degree by, by Joshua Benarié and others, but in a very, in a minimal way, and very few have written about Fulkin the man. The only, the only person who have written about him uh, in detail other than me, I think, was Nathan Brune, who wrote about his legal career and the story of his, his exclusion from the Supreme Court. And I met Nathan Brown, the late Nathan Brown, and we talked about these things. I thought, uh, I thought actually he deserved uh, a more careful study. First of all, the, the memoir is fascinating in terms of his eye for detail. You know, the detail of the, of the Sarai. I don't think we have such another detail of how the Sarai works in around 1890. You know, how a document goes from one room to the other, you know, how the clerks sit and who do you have to, and what stamp you use and all of these things. I, I'm not familiar with another account for Jerusalem. And he goes street by street in terms of what shops were there and who, who sold what. And, you know, this guy was grumpy and this guy was uh, welcoming and so forth. So in that sense, it's a remarkable source. But it's also a remarkable source of, uh, on the kind of trajectories that the late Ottoman and British Mandate period uh, allowed and a way to think of these Jewish communities and not through the lens of Zionism and not through this kind of uh, dismissive category, the old issue, which is an ideological uh, category that designed to make them sound, you know, irrelevant. You, you know, the old Yeshuv, they are the people of the past. This is the way the Zionists refer to the Jewish communities that were already there in Palestine before they came. Of course, the story is much more complicated, but it's actually not a very useful way because it, it actually masks such a difference between them. And through someone like Frumkin, we can see these people on their own terms, not as part of some pejorative old issue, but part of communities in a, in, a, in a process of transformation. We are going to take a short break. Thank you for listening to the podcast. And remember to join the Facebook page, sign up for the Twitter and Instagram accounts. If you have a story you want to tell about Jerusalem, if you know someone who you think I should interview, please get in touch and let me know. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, and part of his project, at least part of the, you know, the idea of a podcast, is also to revive figures. I mean, a city is made of its people, not just the buildings. Um, so my point is really to try to give back, uh, using a very sophisticated word, agency, 
to individuals and you know some of them are well known some others are not and and i think you know there is this process of getting back all of these figures their contribution but also what they left to us and one of the things about uh, gut Frumkin, which you mentioned uh, and i learned through your work and also trying to read uh, a little bit through uh, the memoir is the description of, of the streets of jerusalem streets of jerusalem that are also part of your work that have been part of your work for uh, quite a long time streets in jerusalem had names sometimes different names from the same street sometimes had no names but when the british arrived one of the policy uh, was to naming the streets so i wanted to bring you here to this point of uh, the question of naming uh, streets around the city how did that work and what uh, might be the consequences of you know assigning names to the streets of jerusalem it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Okay, so this is, um, you know, this is one of the very first um, things the British, the High Commission does. So um, Herbert Samuel arrives in, in Palestine in the summer of 1920. And in August, he asks the Pro-Jerusalem Society, which is this uh, organization headed by the governor, um, to name the streets and to put, uh, to put nameplates. So this is very much high on the agenda. I mean, this is the first High Commissioner of Palestine. And this is one of the very first things he 
thinks about. And the question, my question is why? Why this is a priority? Um, and it's important to rule out, it's not because there's a pressing need for it on a pragmatic level. So people found, you know, people sent uh, letters uh, to Jerusalem before there were uh, street names, official street names, and the letters arrived in their destinations and people found the addresses, etc. This is not about pragmatic uh, need. This is a different kind of uh, operation. So the need for that, I, I saw a number of reasons. Um, one is that it's clear that um, Herbert Samuel thinks it about this as a way to map the city. So he thinks of the city as segregated between different religious communities. And uh, in order to map who lives where, uh, you need street name and the street name will tell you if it's a biblical prophet name, then probably it's a Jewish street. If it's uh, a Saladin, then it's um, probably a Muslim street. If it's, uh, um, if it's a crusader name, then maybe it's more an international, a place where foreigners live, uh, European and so forth. Uh, and that was in order, I mean, the British thought of calculating their policies on ethnic level and on spatial level, and that kind of enabled them to read the map very easily. They could look at the map and tell you where the Jews live, where the Muslims live, uh, and so forth. You know, in the old city, they thought it's very simple. You have the quarters. Now, in reality, it wasn't the reality. You know, the, the four quarters of the city, the Jewish, Muslim, Armenian, and Christian, that's how they thought of it. But in reality, we know that this is not how, how people lived. I mean, we have Jews living in the Muslim quarter. We have Christians living in the Muslim quarter. I mean, this is a, a really a European invention. But, but, but that's kind of part of the way of mapping the ethnic uh, makeup of the city. And in some ways, help, helping to make that map come, come true is through, um, is through street names. Because you know, if you come and your idea is that Jews in the old city live only in the uh, Jewish quarter, then sooner or later that will also be true. Because in a variety of ways, the British helped that reality to, uh, to take uh, form. And that was one reason. The other reason is administrative, that they wanted uh, addresses because they um, wanted to be able to reach citizens or residents directly. The Ottomans worked a lot with local delegates, with local power. And when the Ottomans uh, arrived to, um, for example, to, for conscription, to, to, to see who should go to the military or not, and there's a committee that you know, exa examines each, uh, each man that is 18 year old and more. So it sits in one room, and the Mukhtar, the delegate, brings all the men to that room. They don't go along around the street looking for these people. So they don't need the addresses when the Ottomans, I mean, they are not to the same degree. 
The British didn't trust the Mukhtars, didn't trust the delegates. They wanted to be able to have the address. So they, when they need to arrest a certain Musa or a certain Moshe, they know that they live in Prophet Street 38. So for that, they need the address. And that is the British approach. Uh, um, now, of course, it didn't work as they planned. I mean, they, a lot of streets remained un, you know, not signposted. And, and houses did, still didn't have numbers up until 1947-48. But that at least was the intention. The philosophy was, we need the houses numbered, we need the street names, because we want to get to you. If you've done something wrong, you didn't pay your taxes, uh, you know, and everything that we need to know about you, we want your address. And this is not completely new. I mean, the Ottomans were moving in that direction. We should say, I mean, through census and through records and the, the first numbering of the houses, as I say in the book, takes place in 1858. And the, and the population hates it. And, you know, they, they, they know that when somebody comes and numbers your house, that probably is bad news for you. They want more taxes. They want you to go to the military and so forth. So that idea of disciplinary state power it's something the population is quite suspicious of from the very beginning. And it does happen under Ottoman times, but, but the Ottomans um, didn't force it to the same degree. Um, and especially what is very different between the two regimes, two systems of rule, is the ideological dimension. And this is, I think, the most important thing for uh, for the British. So they, the idea of ideologically transforming the city or um, enforcing their vision of the city on the city. We should remember that the, the British had very little money to spend. So they don't, they don't have the money to fund large build, building projects uh, and large constructions and so forth. Um, so that's not a contribution. I mean, you look at the uh, at the public buildings that built the British built in thirty years. Not many of them. There's there's many important ones, but it, again, the, it's it's not a huge number. But street naming is a very easy, inexpensive way to change the city, to change the way the streets are called. And by changing the name of the street, you change the story that the, the city tells. And the story they wanted to tell is of Jerusalem as a biblical city, ancient city, holy city, um, segregated city, um, and a city that belonged to the ancient past. And you can see this uh, in the names that are chosen. And, and the also, the periods that are chosen are the periods that they were closest to, and that is the Bible, including the Christian Bible, um, and the Crusades. And these are, you know, the, the, the groups that get as many names as possible. There's hardly any Muslim names. And, um, and so that is very important. And, and, and I should stress is that the idea is, I'm not talking just about the old city, I'm talking about the new city, the parts that are really completely new and um, and the names of the street in the 
outside the walls, the way that people refer to them are usually names that either was the direction, you know, this is the, the street of Diyasin, uh, or Betzafafa, um, or um, a street of Faidil Alami, that is after the mayor, because the mayor paved the street, or street of the consulates, or streets of the, um, you know, the, the Italian hospital. These are all kind of quite straightforward names. In a way, when you go in, in the UK, and that's the names that streets often have, you know, uh, Lamps Conduit, you know, uh, these practical names that survived, not so much commemorative names. And that was also the names in, 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 in Jerusalem. They changed all these mundane street names to biblical prophets' names and so forth. And, and by that, change the story and that you connected to the how these street name plates looked like they were uh, ceramics in a way that was made uh, very deliberately to resonate with the ceramic tiles of the dome of the rock so in the same way that they uh, the decree was that all the buildings in Jerusalem had to be, be built now at least from the external side from stone so they would echo the old city in the same way the street names echoed the Dome of the Rock. And in both senses, we are talking about the sanctity of the holiest places and you project it outwards to a city that was really largely uh, modern. And this is the, this is the project of, uh, of the street naming, which is effectively a very successful project because a lot of the names are... are take uh, hold and people call the streets by these names. So in that sense, it's, um, it's a very, it, it's illustrative of the way that the British took a city that was a city that's very much excited about uh, the, you know, the future and made it a city that was about the past. You just made a very important reference Talking about uh, the question of the British, many in the past used to argue that uh, the British modernized Jerusalem and it's only with the British that finally you have modern Jerusalem coming about. Um, the British didn't build much, they didn't have the money, but they created the legal framework which allowed others to build the city. I heard you talking about uh, the question of the British demodernizing the city. I was wondering if this is connected to just uh, the question of the buildings, the question of the past. Uh, what does it mean to demodernize the city? I found this extremely uh, fascinating and controversial, I would say, too. Um, demodernizing means to, um, um, to basically entrench, create and entrench a view of the city that is, uh, its meaning is about the ancient past. And, and it is a, a city that is beholden to its past and a city where, which is about uh, its sacred meaning and so forth. And, um, and I think that is, I mean, that's the, that is the British project uh, there. 
it doesn't mean to stop the development of the city. Of course, the city continued to develop and grow, um, but um, but it means that that development was done in a way that would serve that narrative. Uh, first, archi architecturally, so in terms of the shape, and a, a city that is built of stone looks older than it is. And if it was built, um, you know, if we had a city that is a, a built of concrete and uh, stucco and so forth, um, it would look very different. It would look much modern uh, than it is today. And it would be much more difficult to, to make claims that this is the eternal city of Jerusalem. When you look at concrete, these claims sound a bit more hollow, I think. Um, so I think that is, um, um, that is crucial element there. Uh, they were very hostile initially to, to ideas of uh, development. I mean, we, we can see this is um, in the concession for tramways and, and electricity, which they cancel. I mean, they canceled the, the there was a quick um, Ottoman, former Ottoman citizen who had uh, the concession to establish tramways and electricity provision in Jerusalem from before the war. And this was a concession that uh, the late mayor, uh, El Hosseini, was very proud of. Um, but because of the war, it was delayed. And the British an annulled it almost immediately, the tramways, because they they say it's, it's it, it, you know, uh, it's something that is, um, uh, you know, it, it can't, it, uh, it doesn't belong to Jerusalem. And uh, because it, it, it looks too new and uh, Governor Stores were very, was very proud of making this joke that, you know, the tramways will be laid on the dead body of the governor, he said. I mean, he used to uh, say it in lectures in the US. Um, when you look at someone like Ashby, I mean, Ashby, comes to the city, Charles Ashby, who was the civic advisor to the government, governor. And he laughs at the idea that Jerusalem needs electricity. You know, he says, why do you need electricity in Jerusalem? You know, what uh, industry, what industry? There's no industry, there's no need for industry. So uh, Ashby has this idea of um, arts and crafts. So he has this idea of a med medieval uh, production that will somehow be revived and revitalized. And when you look at Ashby's plans for Jerusalem, it's all about these kind of Bedouin, um, uh, trading Bedouins coming to the city and sleeping in caravanserais, completely orientalist vision that was out of touch with Jerusalem of the, uh, of the previous 50 years at least. So in a way, I mean, they came with this very, very orientalist view of the city as, as an ancient and, and, and so forth city that, that its only uh, way forward is to go back. We can see this with the clock tower of, that they did demolish. I mean, the clock tower that the Ottomans put on Jaffa Gate, 
And the clock tower is the new modernity. It's something that the residents were very proud of. They could look up and see the time and correct their own watches if they had one. And the British demolish it almost immediately. And this is because they want to remove time from Jerusalem, to make it timeless and, and to send it back to the past in the most clear way. So I think this is the, this is the project that uh, I see there. And it's a project that is successful in, in some ways because uh, um, this is the way we talk about Jerusalem today. I mean, as you said, most of the literature, you know, when it approaches Jerusalem, that's how it writes about the city. You know, a sectarian city, eternal city, ancient city, and so forth. Now, of course, it's a very ancient city, and uh, of course, residents are proud of that. But if you look at Jerusalem, and the old city is less than 1% of the entire built environment. I mean, depends, of course, what boundaries you take. But the Jerusalem metropolitan area now stretches from Ramallah to Bethlehem, uh, and, you know, south and, and north and, you know, uh, west of the city and east of the city. And of course, there's the green line goes in between all that. But if you look from the satellite, it's a huge metropolitan area. And most of it, oh, like 99% was built in the 20th century. So it's not an ancient city at all. I mean, the tiny nucleus of it is, but it's really a modern city. Uh, but that vision of the British means that we think of it as qualitative dif qualitatively different than, say, we think of, of Jaffa or Jaffa Tel Aviv or, 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 or similar cities. Yeah, when I think about that period of time and with my own work about particularly the Stone of Jerusalem, I, I always wondered what did they really think about it? I mean, there's, there's also an aesthetic issue. I mean, the stone might look nice, but uh, it created this uh, homogeneous vision of, of the city, which I don't know. I mean, personally, it doesn't even look good. But uh, as I said, this is a personal uh, opinion about architecture. Uh, not to mention the fact that there are economic issues because stone was more expensive than other materials. And obviously that brings about all the questions about who could actually build the new city. Uh, I have one more question about your book before we actually come to the conclusion of the interview. But uh, I found it fascinating in your work, you talk about uh, graffiti at the Western Wall. The Western Wall is this you know, sort of very important, uh, I would say the very heart of, uh, of the Jewish faith at least in the contemporary era. And um, as myself, I dealt a little bit the Western Wall. I, I must say that I never came across the fact that there were graffitis there. I'm certainly aware of graffitis uh, at the Holy Sepulchre. They've been there since the Crusader times, but I was not aware of, uh, of these graffitis. And then browsing some old pictures, uh, when actually, still with the Maghrebi quarter was around, I actually could see the shade of them, but I never paid attention. So I must say thank to you because you brought this back to the attention. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, these graffitis? So yes, I mean, I start, I, I came across them in um, archival photographs and I was uh, uh, stunned. I never knew about this and I didn't realize what, didn't, uh, 
didn't make sense to me. And, and the historiography on the wall, and this is, uh, of course, a site that much has been written about and, uh, and so forth. There was almost no references to that uh, in recent historiography. Um, um, and it was referred to as a strange custom. Or in a, you know, in a, or as an ancient custom, which again didn't make sense because the photographs were from the early 20th century, and you can see these are these are not medieval inscriptions; these are recent inscriptions. Um, so I start I start digging from there, um, and I could see that from various photographs and paintings that they, that they were very visible. Uh, characteristic of the world. Uh, people used to write their names. It's male names, as far as I can see, it's only men. And um, and they were all over the world. Um, so the more I dug, I, 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 I could see that this was not unique to this site. It's, it's uh, something that was done in Jewish holy sites, primarily tombs, but also synagogues and other places from the Roman period. So it, it really goes back uh, thousands of years. And it's not unique to Jewish practices of pilgrimage. It's, you know, you can find it in Islam, also Christianity, the idea, and also pagan practices, the idea that you come to a place and you write your name, and that name will serve as a blessing for you or your, for your family and so forth. So this is a very ancient custom. Um, from the late 19th century, early 20th century, you start seeing fascination with it and you start seeing also condemnations of it um, because suddenly there are people who say this is superstitious, uh, improper custom that is not becoming of a, of a place like the Western War. So they talk dismissively about this or something that should stop. But really around the 1929 riots and their aftermath, uh, there's a huge amount of attention to the wall and the inscriptions and the graffiti become part of that story. And after that, the custom is banned. And by that point, you see everybody, all the official bodies, I would say, are on board with this project of banning the graffiti. Um, and that includes the British authorities. For them, this was an ex a potentially explosive site where things can go out of control and people writing on the wall is one way of things of get getting out of control. Um, for Zionist authorities, um, this was a national site and, and by pilgrims just writing their names, this is disrespectful for Jewish Orthodox modernizing authorities. This was again, something disrespectful to a site that they understood religiously rather than nationally, unlike the Zionists. And for the uh, Supreme Muslim Council, uh, this was part of, of Zionist attempts to take over the wall and, and eventually take over uh, Al-Aqsa. Mosque. So they saw it as a Zionist uh, kind of uh, staking ownership of the, over the site. So all of these uh, 
authorities. They are they have different perspectives on the site, but they all you are united in this idea that the custom should be prohibited. And what is interesting is that pilgrims continued to write their names on this place, but by then they would get arrested. There is police in the wall after 1930, and there's a, an official rabbi, which wasn't the case before 1929, and the police arrest. And sometimes the rabbi goes very quickly to the pilgrim and say, stop writing. But if not, then the police arrest them. And in some cases, I think someone was sent to prison for a month um, for writing. And the rabbi says, absolutely, go for it. We, you know, this is out outrageous what people do in the world. So, I mean, for me, it was remarkable that something that was a very ancient custom overnight becomes something that is banned and is, um, you know, denounced and later on forgotten and erased, not just from the wall, but also from memory. And it also said something about um, the nationalization of this site and the fact that it became a site of conflict, um, but also this kind of fetishization of architecture. Uh, and I will mention Daniel Munch's uh, book, uh, Aesthetic Occupation, which is a very dense, complex book, but uh, fascinating. And it talks about the fetishization of architecture uh, and the holy sites as part of the conflict. You know, you move from a moment in which pilgrimage means hands-on engagement uh, to a, a situation where uh, holy architecture becomes something that is abstract almost, becomes an image. You can't touch it. You shouldn't touch it. I think that kind of changes in our approach to material culture uh, is, is really fascinating. And it happens quite abruptly there. So. I found it really, really fascinating. One last question. We started a conversation talking about your work, and your work started uh, with you walking around the city of Jerusalem, trying to think about text, trying to discover the city. If you were to walk around Jerusalem right now on the spot, and you would name two of your favorite spots, which one they would be? So, I mean, I think the first probably is easy. Um, there's a compound in Abu Tur neighborhood, a story in a, its Arabic name. And it's a compound that, that belonged to the Greek Orthodox monastery. There's a bandstand in the middle of the, that that I think served for bands in the British mandatory period, or at least that's the neighborhood mythology. And it's very overgrown. There's lots of houses there, there that used to be, I think they started as half squatters or something. Or Anyway, there's lots of illegal disputes about this compound. And as a result, it's underdeveloped, and it's one of the most beautiful views on the old city from there. It's not the prominent that you know, and it's also very beautiful, but it's also 
uh, very perfect. This is not perfect. It's very overgrown. And it's, I mean, the, um, the landscape is, is stunning. The other place generally is the streets of, of Nachlaot and uh, the areas of the market and going to the, um, to the Shuk, the Machne Yehuda market is, um, is really one of the pleasures of being in Jerusalem for me. Um, it's, um, Nachlaot is a very interesting uh, patchwork of neighborhood, which are late Ottoman neighborhood set up by communal bodies and endowments, basically, initially for the services of different communities. So lots of Mizrahi communities, but also Ashkenazi communities. And it is a mix between the Ashkenazi Orthodox and gentrification and Mizrahi. And you have the synagogue, the great synagogue of the Jews from Aleppo and Kurdish Jews, etc. Lots of graffiti, uh, uh, hipster graffiti, and you know stickers telling you to keep the Shabbat and to give money for tzedakah and just random stuff. And I think that, I mean, I think that randomness is what I like. So it's this mishmash. And of course, I mean, Nachlaot. If you look at the British planners and uh, administrators. In the 1920s, they hated Nachlaot uh, and the place uh, near the middle of the, uh, forgot the name. But these kind of all the Ottoman Jewish neighborhoods, they thought they were slums. They reminded me them of the East End and they wanted to demolish them as soon as possible. Today, of course, they are celebrated as, as this kind of old, beautiful Jerusalem. But uh, for them, for the British, they were slums. For the Zionist newcomers, the ones that came in the 20s and 30s, again, they were slums. They, you look at how they write about them, and it's with contempt often. They kind of say, this is almost, this is Arab, you know, although these are Jewish neighborhoods. Um, but I mean, today they are cherished as, you know, beautiful and the, the character of Jerusalem, and that's the, the place to go and eat falafel or kube soup or, or whatever. So that's kind of the, yeah, between those uh, places, that's my Jerusalem. This was Yari Walak, senior lecturer at Source and author of A Seating Fragment, Urban Text in Modern Jerusalem. Yair, thank you so much. Thank you, Roberto, for this uh, uh, podcast and for the wonderful series of fascinating podcasts that you've produced so far. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Jerusalem Unplugged. I hope you enjoyed it. And remember to join our Facebook page as well as our Twitter and Instagram account. Feel free to write your comments. Let me know stories about Jerusalem. Get in touch. And remember... Enjoy, share, subscribe. Thank you. Hey. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.